Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Exodus chapter 12. I'll move your stuff, Kellen. I promise I'm trying not to steal it. Had a bad habit of that lately. Um, Exodus chapter 12. So we're doing a series right now going through the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the plan is is that we want to um, walk you through the entire storyline of Scripture in the course of 11 weeks together. So Sunday mornings, we're kind of, you know, you're reading, hopefully you've grabbed one of these and a study guide and you're reading maybe four of these per week, but then you come together on Sunday morning and I, and I hope that what we do is really putting the pieces together. Uh, what I've realized is, is that a lot of people, when they read the Bible, they don't see it as one story. They see it as a bunch of individual kind of vignettes. And, and that's kind of the way we often present it, even in stories like this. We, we see these one things, you know, we, we hear a story of so-and-so, and then we don't really see how it's connected. But on Sunday mornings, what we're attempting to do is bring it all together to show you that this really is one story of God redeeming a people. And so we're in Exodus uh, chapter 12 today. Um, I'm going to read the text, and then I'll pray, and we will get to work. This is Exodus 12. It's on page 53 in the Bibles that we have here. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1, reads like this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. And you must take them from the sheep or the goats. You may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night... They are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, right now we're asking to hear your voice. Lord, we want, uh, over the the course of these next 30 minutes, Lord, we want to be changed by you. We want to hear from the risen and reigning Christ, and we want to know what this is all about and why it matters to us. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. We ask for your help. We pray that you would speak to each of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've noticed when we started into this series that the front end of the Bible presents a pretty grim picture. There's an issue that humanity has, and it is the issue of sin. God made humanity in his image good. It was very good. But then we read Genesis 3 to 11 and we find out, man, something went terribly wrong. And people are, they can be evil. They can be wicked. They're good. They're create, created in God's 
image, but they don't live up to that high calling. So we noticed with Cain and Abel that, you know, we looked at a case study and we said, man, isn't this true of our own hearts as well, that we can easily allow for sin to have way too much influence and control over us. Then we moved into the story of Abraham. We noticed that God was calling an individual and he was saying, I'm going to use you as a vehicle of my blessing. I'm going to bless you so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. We, we began to see that God was making promises all along, that whatever happened in the garden with sin, he was going to undo. And he was going to do it through this one people, through Abraham and his offspring. So Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob gets a new name, Israel. And Israel has 12 sons. And last week, we looked at one of those sons, Joseph. Joseph, according to the Bible, Psalm 105, he was sent ahead of Abraham and his offspring, and, and he was sent there, sold as a slave. And they landed then in Egypt. Joseph was in Egypt, and the Israelites um, ended up having to move to Egypt because there was a famine. And Joseph had uh, been placed in a position of power, so he had the ability to collect a bunch of resources. And when the famine struck, everyone ran out of food, and the brothers ended up having to come to purchase food from their long-lost brother. And that's where we left them last week. We left the people of God in Egypt. And it was kind of like this awesome story of how God was working behind the scenes to do something good. But what happened next was the king after that one forgot about Joseph and, and those people. And he actually began to see them as problematic. They were, they were increasing in number. And so he looked at them and he said, I don't, I don't like that there are these people kind of mixed in with us, the Egyptians. Let's turn them into slaves. Let's make them our slaves. And then for over 400 years, that's where the people of God are living. They're living in Egypt under the oppression of the Egyptians. And so we pick it up here in Exodus chapter 12 when God is saying, I'm going to get my people out of there. I'm going to redeem my people. And he uses Moses, and many of you would be familiar with the story of Moses, but Moses is leading the people, and then there are, you know, nine different plagues of things that happened to the Egyptians to show the power and the might of God himself. And this is the 10th and final one that we've read this morning. And it's the plague of the Passover. And so we see then in this, in, in this event that we're, that we're reading from, we see how God is rescuing his people. And this is such an important turning point in the life of the people of God that I couldn't, I couldn't leave it alone. I said, we, we need to understand what God has done here because it really informs who we are as the people of God. And so we're going to learn really three things here. There, there are three kind of lessons that this story speaks into. The first has to do with our identity. It teaches us something about our identity. Secondly, we're going to learn something about judgment, about the judgment of God and how that plays out and why that plays out. And then finally, we're going to learn something about salvation. So let's get to work. First off, identity. This event is so significant because this really is the starting point of the people. To this point, they have, a, they, they have a collective identity, but they're not really established as a people yet. And this is the moment where God is saying, I'm declaring you to be a nation. I'm redeeming a people, and this will actually become a defining mark in your life. This Passover event will be the way that you even talk about yourself, the community of the redeemed. But this is a very, very significant thing. Uh, it's, it's something that's so important that it starts their calendar. Look at verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. From this point forward, 
Your timekeeping is going to be based off of this event. That's how important it is. This event is going to be so central to who you are as a people that even when you look at your calendar, this will show up and you will understand God redeemed us in Egypt. He saved us out of Egypt. That's who we are. That's a pretty significant thing. It's a new beginning for them. From this point forward, they're saying this is now the start of your year. This is now the new beginning. You guys are now becoming a people. This is important for us. The, the Passover event as individuals as well and as a church community to recognize that being redeemed by God and being saved by God, that becomes a defining feature of our lives. We need, we need to understand what God has done here. Another thing about the identity is that it's something that every person within the community has to participate in. It's a community-wide event, but it also shows up in the lives of individuals and families and households. So look with me at verse 3. It says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb. The whole community, if you want to be a part of this community, you have to participate in this event. Tell the whole community, if you are going to be a part of us, you have to have this Passover experience. It's something that belongs to the entire community. It's something that also belongs to individuals. It goes on to say in verse 3, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. And then in verse 4, it tells us the provision for smaller households. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with one of their nearest neighbors, having taken into account the number of people there are. Here's what it's saying. Everybody who's a part of this community needs to participate. This is who we are now, the whole community and individuals. If you want to be a part of this, you have to participate in this Passover event. Here's another thing that, that's really significant about their identity. They are becoming, in this moment, something that God intends for them. They are becoming a people who are priests. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. It'll show up in Exodus 19 where God makes it very clear I'm going to, God is saying to them, I'm going to make you into a nation of priests. You're going to be a people who every single individual actually operates as a person connected with God and able then to share that with other people. That's at the base of what a priest really is. I mean, they do lots of things. They teach, they're, you know, they do uh, medical stuff, they do home inspections, they do all kinds of different things. But at the very base of what a priest is and what their function is. It's to know God, to have access to God, and then be able to mediate that and give that to other people. And here, we're beginning to see God's intention for his people. Walt Kaiser, one of the dudes that uh, was a professor of mine, and I look up to him greatly and uh, spent some time with him up at his, up at his farm in, in Wisconsin. He puts it like this in his commentary. He says, here in Exodus, we see no priests, no altar, no tabernacle, Families commune in the presence of God and around the sacrificial lamb that is the substitute for each member of that family. Here's what, here's what this is getting at. The people of God are meant to have this relationship with God that isn't, it's not just like, hey, we want to get, we want to get people to the professionals. We want to get people to, you know, the, the religious professionals. When we think about this around here, we talk about our goal is that you would feel equipped to do life on mission that you would recognize that it's not just about getting people to a church service, but it's deploying you to be able to mediate God to other people, to, to recognize that God has given you this incredible privileged relationship and you go out and you share it 
And some people are never going to come into this auditorium, but you're going to go to where they live and you're going to have credibility there and they're going to listen to you and you're going to be this kingdom of priests. We even, show it up, we, we even see it showing up here in this event that marks them out as the people of God. Every family is doing what would later become priestly responsibilities of taking that lamb and dealing with that lamb so that they could connect with God and be safe with God. That's a part of their identity. They're also a people who are pilgrims, who are on a, who are on a journey, and the, the meal itself indicates the kind of relationship that they're going to have with God. Look at verse 11. It says, This is how you are to eat this meal. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. When they have this meal, they are they're not reclining. They're not sitting around. It's not this kind of leisurely meal. They are, even as they're eating, they're preparing to go. And this is a part of the feature of being the people of God. We are a pilgrim people. We, we, we get ourselves ready because we're on a journey with God. Alec Motier, he puts it like this. The Israelites ate the Passover meal as those committed to go walking with God. We, we share in this meal with the intention that we're going to walk with God. And our experience is going to be one of a pilgrimage. We're going to walk with him. But, but that means, you know, wherever it is that we land, we're going to be citizens of heaven. And we're going to be a people who are walking with God wherever he's leading us. But that's a part of our identity. That's a part of who we are. So as we think about this Passover event and, and how it shapes our identity, there are some very significant things here. The Passover should have a defining feature in your life. As a Christian, you should be able to say, there, there is a day when I placed my faith in the lamb, in the blood of the lamb, and that changed everything. That was the starting point for my new life in Christ. There's a defining moment that we could look at. It ought to serve as this event that marks out this new beginning. It's also something that every person needs to participate in. That is something that as a church, we say this is, this is important for all of us as a community, but every individual and every family and every household also has to say, this is my identity. This is what we care about. We care about the blood of the lamb and what God has done to redeem us. But it's something then that changes us. It also... Um, means that we should have this ability to share that with other people, to embrace the, the priestly calling that I mentioned, to be able to go away from here and share with other people, there is a God and he is good and he is a redeemer. And I've experienced that personally and I want you to know that as well. And then finally, you are a pilgrim. If, if you think through this stuff and you think about what it means to live in relationship with God, you should be a people who are ready to go wherever it is that God is going to walk beside you. All right, here's why this is really important. This morning, even as I was taking communion, I'm, I'm applying this stuff to my own heart. I need to be somebody whose identity is shaped by the redeeming work of God. Because if I base my identity off of being a pastor, it, it crumbles very quickly. When my you know, inadequacies come to the surface and I begin to realize, man, this can't be my identity. When I try to base my identity off of being a husband or a daddy, I'm not, you know, I, there are going to be moments where I'm failing miserably. And if that's the thing that really defines my life, I, I, I'm going to crumble under that pressure. If it's, some, if it's based off of anything that I need to perform or do, there are so many inadequacies about me that that can never be my, 
my identity that would give me comfort and rest. But if my identity is in Christ, if my identity is shaped by the blood of the lamb and what he's done for me and that experience of newness that he's given me, of redeeming my life, then all of a sudden it's game on and I can have what we call gospel confidence. I can go through whatever. I can go through any trials, any difficulties because I am clinging to the blood of the lamb. So we learn something about identity here. The second thing we learn about is judgment. We see here in the text that God is saying, I'm going to pour out my wrath on these people. I'm going to send the angel of destruction there and I'm going to judge and I'm going to do something here that really is unsettling. I know we read these stories in Sunday school environments and we, I mean, even when I was reading this one uh, this week and and it just kind of gives a sentence and it makes, it says it so nonchalant, but if you're paying attention and you think through what is the judgment of God? Why does it come and, and what can we do about it? It really is a terrifying reality. Why is there death and judgment? Look with me at verse 12. This is how it reads in our narrative here. It says, on that same night, This is God speaking. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. God is saying that he's going to bring about his judgment and it's going to involve death. And my question then is, why is that so? Is that even fair? I mean, if you thought through, surely there had to be some good kids, firstborn kids in Egypt, right? They couldn't all be bad. So how is it that God is going to judge and how is it that so many people were going to die? Well, let's think, let's do a little, you know, thought project here. When is the first time that we heard about death in the Bible? It's back in Genesis at the very front end. Remember when God gave the the instruction to Adam, he said, you can eat freely from any tree in the garden, but of the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for it. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. And then Eve takes the fruit, sees that it's desirable, begins to question the character of God. She takes and eats and gives some to her husband. Here's the question. Did she die? Well, it depends on what you mean by die. Because in that moment, it wasn't like a poison apple that she just fell down dead. She continued to live. She continued to do things. But the Bible begins to explain death is, you know, it's multifaceted. There are multiple kinds of death. There are, you know, A first death, a second death, and a permanent death. There's a spiritual death, there's a physical death, and there's an eternal death. That that when we ate of the fruit, we spiritually died to the things of God. We said we don't don't want the life-giving source. And there was a spiritual death that occurred there. And that, you know, humanity has to deal with now. Ephesians tells us we were, in our sins, we were spiritually dead. And so there's a death there. And then there's a physical death. And, you know, a lot of us are beginning to, to reckon with that physical death. I mean, I had a surgery this year. And it's been a weird process for me because so much of my life has been action sports and athletic stuff. And, you know, I had the surgery and I thought to myself, I'm going to train really hard. I'll be able to get back out there. But then it dawned on me. So after surgery, I began to think about my age. And I'm almost 40 now. And I be, so there was this process over the last several months where I had to realize this, I'm never going to be able to approach the sports in the same way that I had to this point. It's not like all of a sudden I'm going to be healthy and better and going out there with the 20-year-olds and doing all the stunts. It's just not in the cards for me anymore because my body is dying. 
right? When it was negative 12, I go outside and I'm walking and I'm, I'm walking and I have this, this idea in my head as I'm feeling my, my ligaments freeze. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm brittle. If I fall down right now, I will probably shatter. So there's this physical death that we all are dealing with because our bodies are fading away and all of us one day will expire in that way. And then there's an eternal death that if we never reconnect with the life-giving source, if we never spiritually come alive to God, and if we physically die and we've lost that connectedness, then for all of eternity, we are in that eternal death. And so that is the picture that the Bible paints. And it says, this is in regard to sin. This is because of sin. Romans 6, 23 puts it like this. The wages of sin is death. If God were to come and settle accounts and he looked at the sin in my heart, if there is nothing else to be said about me other than the, the realities of that sin, then the wages of my sin would be death. And that would be just. That's what God is, is describing with his judgment. And then what we have in the Bible then are these little pre-events of judgment. We have these times where God says, at, at the end, I'm going to come back and I'm going to settle accounts. Everyone has to be ready for that. There's a day coming where each of us will stand before the judgment seat of God and he's going to settle accounts. And in the Bible, he kind of gives us a preview of those coming attractions with the flood and with Sodom and Gomorrah and here with, with the plagues. And he's saying, there's a day coming where all of us are going to have to stand before God and give an account. He's going to judge the earth. And if we don't do something about this sin condition, then it would be fair for God to pay us the wages of sin, which is death. Okay, so now we look at our story and we go, okay, if that's true, what's the difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites? Because we might be tempted to say, I know how this works. The Israelites are the good guys. They're saved because they're so awesome. And God looks at them and he says, man, you guys are incredible. I love you. You're such a good people. You have so much potential. And, and we could think that God looks at the Egyptians and goes, you guys are the bad guys. You guys are awful. And so you're getting what's coming to you. But when you pay attention to the story, it doesn't lend itself to that, right? There's, it's not that the, you know, Israelites are the good guys and the Egyptians are the bad guys. The truth is they're very sim similar to one another. Um, I know that it says that he's going to judge the gods of Egypt. But just a couple chapters later, do you guys remember what happens? Uh, the Israelites, Moses goes up the mountain to get the words of God. Because now they're a redeemed people. And God says, let me give you some instructions for living with a holy God. Now that you're redeemed, let me show you the, the words of grace, the Ten Commandments, and how you should live in harmony with me. And he goes up there, and it takes a while. It's kind of like when we go to Target, and I say, I'm going to wait in the car, Ash. And she goes in. I think, man, this shouldn't take very long. And then, you know, you know how it works. And, and imagine, uh, this is what happens with the Israelites. Moses goes up the mountain, and they go, man, this is taking forever. So what do they do? They take their gold, they throw it in a fire, they make a new God. They make another God. And they begin to worship that God, the, the golden calf. I mean, so you look at the, the Egyptians and you go, God's just punishing them because they have so many other gods. The, the Israelites, they know better. Well, no, they don't. Or maybe you say, the reason why God poured out his judgment on the Egyptians is because they're an oppressive people. You know, they've put the Israelites in slavery. They've taken an entire people group and forced them into slavery. Question, church fam, how did Israel get there in the first place? The brothers 
sold Joseph as a slave. So when you start to look at the story, it's a level playing field. The judgment of God is coming and we can't just say there are good guys and there are bad guys. Here's what we can say. If we don't understand how to apply the blood of the lamb to our lives, we're all in trouble. We're all in trouble. It is a level playing field at the foot of the cross. So whether you grow up in America or Ethiopia, whether you grew up in a Christian household, hearing the things of God, or you grew up in an environment where people actively rejected the idea of God. Whether, you know, whatever your story might be, the thing that you most need in your life is to be passed over because you've applied the blood of the lamb to your life. There is a judgment coming. I don't know how else you can be safe other than to trust in God's work for you. Romans 6, 23 Again, it goes, for the wages of sin is death, but here's the invitation. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We, the wages of sin, if we got what we deserve for sin, it would be death. But God has given us a gift and it is to trust in his completed work at the cross. Okay, finally, it tells us about salvation. This story tells us something about our salvation. First off, we need an appropriate sacrifice. Look at verse five, the animals you choose must be year old males without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. But he's saying, you don't go through your flock and go, well, here's the runt. This one's never gonna do me any good. This can be my offering to God. This can be my sacrifice. No, he's saying, you, when you go through your flock, you find the healthy, the good, the, the one that you would recognize, this would be an incredible sacrifice. Now, what is that pointing to? It's pointing to the fact that if you're going to be saved, you're going to have to put your trust in a sacrifice that is effective, that is sufficient. And it's not really the animal. I mean, the writer to the Hebrews, he said as much. He said, the blood of bull and goats, it didn't really deal with our sin, but it pointed to the one who ultimately could. That animal that you bring before is meant to remind you that if you're going to be redeemed by God, you're going to have to trust in his perfect lamb. All of the lambs throughout all of the years were pointing forward to the lamb of God. Do you guys remember what happened when John the Baptist is doing his, his ministry thing and for the very first time, Jesus marches out to the river? What does he say? He realizes in that moment the significance of the one coming toward him. And he, he says this, look, he's looking at Jesus as he's coming to him. Look, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Passover and everything that's happened throughout the history of the Israelites is meant to lead us to him to the sacrifice that is sufficient to pay the penalty for sin. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the way that he does that is because he was executed. He was slaughtered. Let's look at verse six. The sacrifice has to be slaughtered. Verse six, take care of them, the animals, until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. And here's what's going on. It's a substitute. If you're going to live that animal is going to die. If you're going to live, the animal is going to take your place. And there's a substitute then. There's a sacrifice, but it's a substitute. Now, this is what Jesus has come to do. He is the perfect sacrifice and he came to offer his own life. So then when you get to the end of the Bible and it's giving this incredible picture of what it's like in heaven. And there's a lamb, a slaughtered lamb at the very center of the throne room of heaven and all these elders around him and all these angels around him and they're all worshiping this lamb. What are they doing? They're singing like this. This is Revelation 
chapter 5, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy. Singing to this slaughtered lamb, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. The way of salvation is through trusting in the blood of this lamb, Jesus Christ. He was the one who's worthy because he offered himself as that substitute, as that sacrifice. So here's what we need to do then. Same thing the Israelites had to do. We have to apply the blood. Look at verse 7. They are to take, every household, every family, they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. Verse 13 tells us the effectiveness. The blood will be a sign for you on those houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Here's what it's saying. If we want to be saved people, we have to apply the blood. My question then is, have you done that? Have you trusted personally in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you trusted in him as the sacrifice who is willing to go and die in your place so that his blood would make, you know, that payment for the penalty of sin, so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be passed over by the judgment. That should give you great confidence so that on the day of judgment, when you stand before God, you're not going to look at your record, your track record and go, yeah, I'm such a great person. Look, I came to the McChesney Park campus. I volunteered on multiple teams. Look at all the great things that I did. No, you're going to say, the only hope that I have in this moment to pass this judgment is that I am trusting in the blood of the lamb. He's my Lord. He's my savior. He died for me. Have you trusted in the blood of the lamb? If not, I'm going to pray here in just a moment. And I know I, myself and members of our prayer team would, happy, would be happy to walk alongside you in praying that, that you would receive that sacrifice, that you would experience that gift of eternal life, that you would experience that redemption. The people of God, because of the Passover, are liberated. They worship, even in the same narrative, they begin to sing about this redeeming God. They share in a meal We've already done that this morning, but we share in, in the meal of the, the lamb who was slaughtered. And, and they make that a significant recurring event in the life of their community. And they are ultimately saved because they've trusted in the lamb. So let me pray. And if you're willing and able, would you please stand with me as we pray? Lord, we are mindful this morning of the one thing that really makes us Christians. It's believing in the blood of the Lamb. There's a lot of other stuff that happens around here. We're a church. We do churchy things. We call ourselves Christians. But I'm asking God that every person in here would place their faith, that they would personally place their faith in what Christ has done for us at the cross. That he went there and is the lamb who was slain so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be saved. Pray for anyone in here who's maybe contemplating that for the first time. Lord, would you give them confidence to make that public, to talk to other people, to talk to myself or a member of our church and just, just process it out loud with other people, but to make that decision because that is the defining mark of the believing community. We are the community of the redeemed. Let everyone in here experience that redemption, please. In Jesus' name, amen.